Zinc for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was co-produced by InScience, a nonprofit organization that promotes science and evidence-based medicine in Ukraine. For more information about their work, please visit InScience.io. The main for me from uh, last years, I made some kind of conclusion that uh, the main purpose maybe of this tragedy is to make some lessons for humanity. And I think these lessons are so epic, so uh, enormous. And it's not just about nuclear power. It's not just about science. It's about memory. It's about uh, might of people. Yeah. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist, and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Nata Zizhenko of the band Onuka. Onuka is one of the most popular bands in Ukraine, and their songs combine traditional native instruments with electronic music. Onuka's song Vidlik translates to countdown in Ukrainian and was written about the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster that led to the premature deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Also joining us today is radio biologist Olena Padanyuk. Olena is a senior researcher at the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants and a professor at the National Academy of Sciences in Ukraine. For 10 years, she has been studying bacteria in the contaminated soil from the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which was recently occupied by the Russian army. The title of today's episode on the podcast is Vidlik, Surviving Chernobyl and Russian Occupation in Ukraine. Hello, Nata and Olena. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Hi. So you're both in Kiev right now, is that right? Yes, but I'm uh, near Kiev. It's some kind of suburb of Kiev, but it's very close to the center. And what's it like there today? For me, it's very cozy and the spring is coming. Everything is so green and at last we have some sun and it really uh, made me feel like everything is going to be all right. But uh, Kiev is uh, so blossoming. Uh, it's full of energy, full of people, uh, full of volunteers, and uh, the energy is circulating, and I feel uh, like I'm home. Okay, good. And here in, in New York, in the United States, I've had the privilege of only knowing peace. So you live in the reality of, of violence and war. Is that something that you experience day to day? Well, today we had only one air raid alarm, so it was a great spring day. We spent it outside, not in the shelters. That is quite nice. 
when I heard it, I said, long time no see, because uh, we had hmm. no uh, alarms for a couple of days, and maybe we missed them in some uh, pervert way, hmm. because we adjusted to this context of war, context of alarms, context of shelters, and this is our life now, this is our existence, and really we uh, adjusted to it and uh, it's our reality now. Mm -hmm. My son is three years old and he doesn't go to kindergarten yet. That's why he doesn't know what shelter look like. Only uh, in the beginning of war we had some uh, situation when we had to sit there, but uh, he isn't used to sit there. So he just uh, knows the sound of alarm. That's it. Okay. And Nata, you've continued playing music with your band. You've continued touring, writing, rehearsing, performing, all during the occupation. What's that like? I think that this is the second chance to live, to believe, to know what your purpose is. Because when the war started, at first we said goodbye to our lives with our future but then when we adjusted to the situation in some way we said goodbye to our careers our performances because uh, we just had to live and to exist in some way mm -hmm. and when uh, everything uh, was in some kind of balance in a few weeks maybe and we understood that we can have charity tours charity gigs we understood that we had a second chance to perform and I felt that all my band was like blossoming on the stage because they mm. had the second chance to live on the stage and every concert was like uh, the last time uh, i felt uh, mm. their background their energy because they made everything on 100 percent and this synergy between audience and between my musicians and me was a new energy i had never felt uh, such kind of this synergia before. Wow. It's another experience. And I think that when you have another chance to live and to perform and to do what you like, it's like a second uh, day of your birth, mm. literally. Yes, I have to take your word for it. Like I said, this is nothing that we've ever experienced here in the the United States. Have you left Ukraine and come back with the band? Have you toured outside? during the war? Uh, yes, we had uh, a tour uh, via United States and in mm -hmm. Europe. But uh, the trip, the road is really hard because we have no planes in Ukraine now till the end of war. That is why it's a very long uh, adventure to go somewhere with a band mm -hmm. uh, maybe three days in a road. Uh, for mm. one uh, performance and it's really exhausting but it's also our reality and we adjusted to it also and uh, thank god we have 
a possibility to perform in a full way of our performing like it was before the war with all my equipment, with all my technician guys and to, to perform like it was in a peacetime. Anastasia, the woman that set up this episode today, she had told me that it's difficult for men to leave the country and come back. Yes, uh, it's really a big issue to leave the country, uh, especially now. Some time ago, we had a permission from the Ministry of Culture, uh, which was also very formal. It was a long period of bureaucracy, but you just have this like a visa. Uh, you can leave and return mm -hmm. uh, in some days, in a couple of days after this gig. But now... They have some issues and they um, make it more difficult. Uh, now mobil mobilization is um, much more in high way. I don't know, maybe it's incorrect in English, but a lot of people, uh, men and musicians are also go to the front line. That is why it's harder mm. to leave, even if you're a well-known musician. As I was saying earlier, uh, what's unique to your band's sound is that you incorporate traditional Ukrainian instruments. And in particular, in this song, what's so fascinating is this instrument that's featured in this song. It has a giant rope, or I guess you told me it was horsehair. What is the name of this instrument? Uh, the name of this exact instrument is Buhai. Uh, it's called by the name of... Uh bull, animal bull, or a bird with big wings. So uh, it makes the sound very close to the sound of this instrument. But it's two theories, like uh, the name after bull and the name after this bird. But it's a very ancient one, mm -hmm. and it was used just like a percussion on different celebrations, holidays, and a musician had to moisture uh, his hand with a beer uh, and to pull this rope to make friction more tight and the form of the wooden instrument was used to make cheese like a cottage cheese so you can imagine this kind of smell from mm. this instrument <laughs> cottage cheese with uh, beer and it stinks. Uh, yeah it's really yeah. <laughs> scent or something <laughs> Uh, worse, but uh, now we use just a water, and uh, of course it's a contemporary instrument. It's modern one. It's made especially for me uh, from a new wood, and uh, I always uh, liked the way this instrument looks because it was very mm. unique uh, from childhood. I have seen it in the workshop of my grandfather, who was uh, well known. Uh, master of wooden music folk instruments and I was overwhelmed by the way this instrument looks and I wanted to hear the sound of it and it was so weird, so awkward and I uh, recollected it uh, for my entire life and when we started to make some kind of new EP I said to Eugene, to my husband, to my sound producer that I want to use this kind of sound, this kind of noise and to make a bass line based on just on the pure sound of this Buhai. 
And we even invited uh, the musician from National Orchestra who plays this instrument. And Mm. he made a lot of different samples. And uh, we uh, uh, chose uh, the most melodic one and uh, Mm -hmm. sampled it. And it became to be like a bass bass line. Yes. Uh, And it was... Uh, the base structure, and then we began to add something else. And I wanted it to be minimal, mm-hmm. just to make this Buhai play solo, uh, to dedicate uh, the track to this instrument. Because for my opinion, it uh, is used very, not serious in our national and folk music, like just uh, maybe some kind of... Um, amusement mm-hmm. and i wanted to like a joke uh, uh, like a joke yes and uh, i wanted to make this instrument play solo so i think that my mm-hmm. weird idea worked and it sounds like folk techno and i think that uh, this instrument really reminds sound of some synthesizer but it's made from wood and from horses hair it doesn't sound humorous. It sounds, it's very menacing. Yeah, yeah. Like ominous. Uh, yeah. Eerie. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other instruments that you can demonstrate for us today in your studio? Yeah, I have my supilka. Okay. This is wooden flute. I think that's uh, this kind of symbol of Ukraine. I think that a lot of cultures has wooden flutes. But in Ukraine, it plays great role uh, because it's very ancient it's very lyrical very um sad and um it's like a magician uh tool for me uh because you can play mm-hmm. anything uh on this flute and it's very tiny very gentle but it's uh it can make a great impression maybe and um mm-hmm. it is made uh, from wood by my grandfather's student because my grandfather has passed away and I have no instrument of his, like Sopilka. This is my concert instrument. I perform it, so this is my main treasure, maybe. And I have it uh, with me all the time and I had in my luggage uh, when we had to evacuate so it was uh, the maybe the first thing was my son and the second was my dog and the third was uh, this okay. i can play some tune maybe um to hear that please please Thank you so much. Such a beautiful instrument. And so it was first your son, second dog, third the instrument, fourth your husband? (laughs) Yes, something like that. Or husband took us uh, 
with him. Maybe we okay. were three luggages of him. Okay, I see. Fair enough. What can you tell us about Vidlik? I've read some of the interviews. I know that it translates to countdown, but I know that you meant many different things. Could you tell our listeners about that? Um, I am a fan of Kraftwerk. I think that a lot of my fans know about it, and I think that it sounds like I'm their fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to make some kind of Ukrainian techno when you can use Ukrainian language, but in some weird structure. I think it's hard to explain, but all the forms of lyrics is in infinitive form, uh, and it's incorrect in Ukraine. Like, uh, I want to breathe, uh, for example, there, I want breathe uh, without any prepositions. It's just all the words are in uh, infinitive form. But you can understand the sense of these four lines. And uh, the sense of it, I want to breathe, I press countdown, I am ready for the future, I stop the conversation. The plot is very simple. And I think that when I had this idea, I thought that this could be uh, the voice of our nuclear power plant, which is so exhausted with these experiments, with this incorrect guide and incorrect behavior. So it was like a voice of hurt Chernobyl power plant for me. Okay, so you're in a way you're personifying the reactor as an intelligent entity and it's issuing the commands, is that right? Yes, and it talks by Google Talk. It uh, doesn't use my voice even and it's like an irony of fate when the most famous track of mine it's without my voice. Oh, interesting. Well, this is the irony of popular music. Yeah. That's it. And so you had a, a real a personal connection to the accident. Your father was a liquidator, is that right? Yes, uh, he was liquidator and he was a physician and engineer. And his work was to uncommutate third and fourth blocks. So he was like an engineer who worked on the commutation and tried to... What, what does uh, that mean? They had to disconnect th- third and fourth blocks of this power plant okay. because they had mutual control control room yeah okay. they had mutual control room but they had to separate the herd room herd block from the second one i see because they thought that it would work without this herd block and they thought mm-hmm. the whole station would continue working on and it worked for some time, but then it was stopped and closed. And it worked till twenty oh oh. So it worked like more than thirteen years after the accident. The power plant did. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Uh, HBO just released a documentary called "The Lost Tapes." It actually it it seems to make the argument that the fall of the USSR was directly connected to the accident of Chernobyl. Like, is that how you experienced it during your childhood? Uh, I heard such kind of thought that it was like the last nail to the roof of uh, the 
Coven. Coffin. Coffin, sorry, in uh, in uh, Soviet system. Yes. And uh, I was little. I was only one year old. So I can experience it only from my parents' conversations and some historical events, evidences. And uh, I think that uh, that's true because the scale of tragedy and mm. scale of liquidation was so huge and they couldn't cover up uh, these facts because it was really huge. It was unbelievable mm. and impossible to cover it. Because they tried uh, to cover it up. This was uh, the last huge tragedy uh, which just uh, ended it. Okay. That conclusion that I can have from documentaries, mm. from some evidences, but I uh, wasn't a witness of this uh, time. I was okay. too little. Very young. Olena, you were around the same age, yes? Very little. Yeah, I was born in 1987. Okay. So I didn't even experience the accident itself. Okay. And also talking about these uh, theories, uh, it's necessary to know that it costed a fortune. Uh, the liquidation and all of the process of the liquidation of mm -hmm. uh, Chernobyl accident cost like 20 billion US dollars mm. during 1986. Wow. And then every next year, it cost 13 billion uh, US dollars uh, on 1987. And then it played, uh, like, it was a great burden on the economy of newborn Ukraine mm. because it cost us every year, it cost us like five to six billion US dollars. Mm. And Ukraine had a really terrible crisis in 1990s. And we, Nata and I, we experienced that crisis because it was quite bad. Mm -hmm. And yet Ukraine had to spend a fortune on mm -hmm. liquidation of the consequences of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we learned a lot. Ukraine and the whole world learned mm -hmm. a lot from this accident. Mm -hmm. So we kind of paid a very high price mm -hmm. uh, for the knowledge. Yeah. And most of your work, Olena, is done at the site itself. And one of my favorite mm -hmm. visuals from this film is the recent footage that shows the overgrowth that dominates the exclusion zone. Is it easy for Ukrainians to visit the site today? Or is it still blocked off? Today, it's very difficult mm -hmm. because it is mine. Oh, right. So Russians penetrated uh, Ukraine through the exclusion zone. It was one of the routes. On February 24th, they entered the exclusion zone and then they were there until the end of March. So basically for one month. And they did it because there was a Chernobyl National Biosphere Reserve. Biosphere Reserve, yes. Yeah. In Ukrainian territory, we don't have the exclusion zone anymore. It is a, a biosphere reserve already. And in Belarus, they also have this kind of reserve. And two reserves combined together, they were the biggest biosphere reserve in Europe. So it's like a huge swampy territory. So it is uh, the huge territory that was open for animals and animals were migrating from Ukraine to Belarus and there were no borders, basically, because it's, you know, reserve. And Russians entered also because there are some really good roads going from Kiev, from Ukraine to Belarus. So they use, used those roads and they stayed in the exclusion zone for one month. They made trenches in the most contaminated part of the exclusion zone, which is really 
outrageous. I mean, it's outrageously stupid because they lived in the contaminated soil. So they dug it themselves and they made a decision themselves to live in the radionuclide contaminated soil, mm -hmm. you know, like to, to stay there. And uh, of course, they mined all of the territory. And uh, right now, the exclusion zone is under military control. And we have a really dark and bad jokes that uh, Ukraine has no capacity to demine the territory. So probably animals will be the ones who will demine the territory in the exclusion zone. Oh, boy. So, yeah, we are not even talking about ordinary people, about the public. Uh, they needed the permission to come to the exclusion zone before the war. But right now, even scientists who are working in the exclusion zone, we need the permissions both from the administration of the exclusion zone and from military administration of the exclusion zone. So could you tell us a little bit about when you first went back to work after the occupation, what you found in your laboratory? Well, being honest, um, war really changed my work, obviously, because I've been working quite a lot in the lab. Like I've been taking some samples from uh, from the outside, from the environment, and then I've been working in the lab before the war. But then when the war started, my vice director evacuated um, the institute. I wasn't in the institute because we had a quarantine and quite a lot of people were working from their homes. Mm -hmm. A COVID um, quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, this joke, the plague, the war... Mm -hmm yet you have to come to work. <laughs> so uh, now I'm mostly working from home uh, because my sampling locations were not demined and I'm not brave enough, you know, to do it by myself. Understandably. So I will just prefer to stay at home. And also I'm taking some samples from the inside of the Chernobyl sarcophagus. But right now it's also quite difficult because of some administrative problems, because we need to get new permissions to work with radioactivity. So basically I'm working from home and I'm doing quite a lot of international work because obviously the war made Ukrainian science a part of the European science, and we have to apply for more projects. We have to study the consequences of the accidents that luckily didn't happen. So we are extensively studying the consequences of the occupation of the exclusion zone, and we are studying the uh, occupation of the Parisian nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, just trying to analyze what will happen and how will it affect the radiation safety of the whole world because obviously the radiation safety laws should be reconsidered and rewritten and the sarcophagus when you talk about the sarcophagus is that the actual the big smokestack that where the fire happened yeah uh so the sarcophagus it's like Matryoshka. So inside there is a destroyed reactor. Then on the top of the destroyed reactor, there is the sarcophagus. You know, that scary image that was constructed during a couple of months in 1986 and 1987. And then we have the new safe confinement. It is the new arch. It's really beautiful. Uh, so it is covering the sarcophagus because sarcophagus might collapse 
and the new safe confinement can contain all of the consequences. Yeah, but we are taking samples from the premises near the reactor because we are studying high-dose radioactivity, and I find it really fascinating and interesting and can talk about it for ages. Well, please begin. <laughs> well, I'm studying bacteria, like I'm studying microorganisms, and the most fascinating thing about the microorganisms is that it's like the tools of the nature. For example, plants create some matter from the sunlight, water, and the minerals, and then animals are eating plants. But we need something to deconstruct, you know, to demolish all of the dead bodies of plants and animals. And it is exactly bacteria. And bacteria demolishes, they are demolishing not only organic matter, but also inorganic. So bacteria can eat concrete, steel, uranium. So they are, you know, just uh, corroding and decomposing everything. So when you're studying bacteria, you can tell what processes are ongoing in the environment because you just see those processes. And there is some exact tool for each substance that need to be deconstructed. So basically, something that is uh, very interesting for me in Chernobyl is that only 36 years ago, uh, Chernobyl was sterile. So the premises of the power unit, they were, there were no microorganisms mm -hmm. because of the high radioactivity and high temperature and, you know, the nuclear reaction that was ongoing. But then after 36 years ago, the microbiome, it is a community of bacteria, is huge over there. And there are also some bacteria that evolved and they are able to accumulate cesium. It is a, one of the uh, dose forming radionuclides. They're also able to accumulate uranium. And it is fascinating because we can see the evolution uh, by our own eyes. Because obviously before the accident, in the environment, there were no bacteria that were able to accumulate uranium because we had no free uranium. But then, somehow, mm -hmm. the uranium appeared and bacteria were able to create the mechanism to actually use it in their uh, life cycle. When you say accumulate, you mean that they can ingest it? They are like consuming. Yeah, yeah they are absorbed. Okay, I see. They're taking it inside their cells. We cannot say that they eat uranium, but... Is the biome in the exclusion zone, how is it different from the biome in a spot where there hasn't been contamination by radioactivity? If you are talking about the environment, I mean about the forest, it's not that different because the doses, they are quite low. So... Of course, there is a radionuclide contamination and it altered the environment. But after 36 years, environment adjusts. Sure. You know, and as Carlin used to say, like, nature is fine. It's we are not fine. Did you say Carlin? Yeah. George Carlin? Yeah. The comedian. Yeah. Did you hear that joke? He said uh, the reason why God invented humans was because he just really wanted styrofoam peanuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the plastics. Uh, there was the contest for artists. We wanted to draw something on the wall of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And mm -hmm. the picture that won was actually George Carlin, who was saying, 
uh, I'm sorry for swearing, he said, like, nature is fine, we are fine. <laughs> but all in all, uh, there were some nice Przewalski horses and forest and stuff, but we know in our hearts what should have been George there. George Carlin. Before we get too much further, could you define what a radionuclide is for our listeners? A radionuclide is the atom that has some excess energy and it is decaying, releasing the energy. So we can talk about the physics of this process, but something that is interesting for us is that it releases energy or particle, and that is how it can be dangerous. The radionuclide itself can be dangerous for the environment. Okay. Um, and one thing I've always wanted to know, and this is something that I noticed in the, you know, that I was reminded of in the HBO documentary. Why does a Geiger counter make that sound when it's reading high levels of radioactivity? Well, it doesn't need to make the sound. It's just, you can turn the sound off. It's just for you. Oh. <laughs> I mean, uh, the counter is counting the ionization. So there is a chamber inside of it and when mm. the iron hits uh the substance in the chamber uh it generates a small flash and then some detector uh, detects the flash and it just counts the amount of flashes uh you know like the sparkles the, the... yes okay yeah so a giger counter making this sound uh just to draw the attention of the person who is looking you know on the Geiger counter so it could be a trumpet it doesn't matter what it is yeah i see no no it doesn't matter and that was another thing that i noticed in the film was that the footage had flashes in it when they were filming the contaminated zone yeah because uh the um, ions the charged particles hit the film uh, and it uh, destroyed some tiny parts of the film. And then that is why there were some flashes. Okay. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you do your experiments, just the day-to-day -day when you're studying the soil. Well, I'm not only studying the soil. I used to study the soil, but then I moved to substances with higher radioactivity. And we are joking that the more radioactivity is, the more interesting it is for us. Like junkies, radioactivity junkies. Yeah, yeah exactly. But we have, you know, all of the official permissions. Okay. So basically, um, now we are studying samples from the sarcophagus. We are taking not... not me personally because uh, the dose rates in the sarcophagus are way too high so we have the colleagues they are uh, older than 60 years old and they have a great experience so uh, we are studying the map of the destroyed unit we are studying the map of the radioactive lava that was generated because of the accident and then we are deciding that okay we want to take samples here here and here and then my colleagues would say like your wonderful wonderful idea i won't go there it's too radioactive so you you have to to pick another point and i'm like please 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 and they're like okay we'll be fast did i read that you said you had to hire snipers to shoot it with bullets to break off the lava not anymore i mean at our institute they used to do it back in 1990s so it was like a glass it was lava containing concrete, sand, bentonite, 
uh, uranium, steel, so everything that was thrown into the reactor, the very high temperature, very high pressure, it melted into lava and then it cooled down. And then it was really, really, you know, glass-like substance and very mm -hmm. hard to, to, to take the samples. But now, after 36 years, due to chemical and biological corrosion, it's actually possible, you know, just to uh, take the sample with a with a spoon because it corroded, and we have the problem, and it was a big issue during the occupation because this radioactive lava um, is dry mm -hmm. because of the new safe confinement that was installed. The humidity mm -hmm. inside of the sarcophagus got lower, uh, mm -hmm. and this radioactive lava started to be destroyed it, it um because of the high temperature so it's still like uh 30 35 degrees centigrade the temperature of it so it turning into dust and then okay. this dust can be lifted easily and there are a lot of natron sources and there is a very very like highly unlikely possibility that we can have uh, the self-sustaining chain reaction inside the sarcophagus that is why it is extremely important to monitor everything that's going on in the sarcophagus because i mean we can have the chain reaction and uh, well it's not a joke it's very dangerous so our institute, my colleagues, they are monitoring it and they've been monitoring it even under the occupation because you cannot command to radionuclides like, come on, guys, we have the war, you should stop decaying. It's not like... Were they staying on site during the Russian occupation? Uh, some of them. So mostly we are working together with employees of Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which is not the power plant per se. It's not generating energy. It's just, you know, the name of the organization. So they were collecting uh, the data and transmitting when it was possible. They were transmitting data to my colleagues, but then it became impossible mm -hmm. because Russians were, they took the phones and they uh, cut the internet connection and they banned all of the connection from, from people. Mm. But how do you feel about the use of nuclear power? Do you think that that is something that could help stall climate change? Do you think that that's a good idea that we continue to use nuclear power? I'm a very pro-nuke person because, okay, if thinking about the distant future, it's quite obvious that the best source of the energy that we can use is sun. But we cannot get the energy from sun directly like plants do. But we can invent some kind of technology. For example, solar batteries, uh, they are not that efficient, unfortunately, and they are quite uh, toxic. I mean, the, the batteries itself. And they're not recyclable. Yeah. So we still have to invent something. But for inventing this something, we need the energy. And nuclear power plants is the best option for this, you know, period of time when we will be inventing something that is uh, environmentally friendly. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a great option. So that is possible to have nuclear power that is environmentally friendly. Well, we have the sun, it's a nuclear power and it's yes. for sure environmentally friendly. <laughs> and the, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was you, I've read that you said that your mission is to come up with a strategy to overcome nuclear terrorism. How does that connect with your work as a radiobiologist? 
well, it is complicated, being honest. I, you know, usually I prefer joking about my work. And uh, I think that when scientist jokes, it's much easier to understand what the scientist is doing. Sure. But right now, we barely lost the privilege of joking. Because just yesterday, I had a lecture about the, uh, like, how to survive the nuclear bomb attack. And I was joking. And it was creepy. You know, when mm. someone is joking, like, come on, if you're in the ground zero, you can just relax. Nothing will happen. I mean, you will be dead anyway. Yes. So answering your question, uh, I had to pause my research. So it was like two days ago when I actually wrote something about my research, like about my bacteria. And I was very happy about it. But before that, uh, we are scientists and we are employed by our society. Like we are getting salaries from state budget and we have uh, to somehow, if the society has a demand we, and we have the answer on this demand, we have to do everything that we can to answer the demand. So coming back to radiation safety and to countering the nuclear terrorism now unfortunately it is quite obvious that it is possible to steal the nuclear power plant and just today uh, the mine exploded near the uh, power unit in the Parisian nuclear power plant it is outrageous i mean the mine exploded on the territory of the nuclear power plant come on it's it's impossible mm. and that is what nuclear terrorism so Russians are just blackmailing us. And I think that the mission of my colleagues and me is to do everything that we can to prevent it from happening anywhere else again, like never, ever again. So we've got just a few minutes left. Are there any questions that you have for one another? Nata, Elena, anything that you both want to talk about? If I can ask Nata, what do you feel about nuclear energy? I mean, is it scary for you as an artist or does it inspire you? Uh, it's both. <laughs> I think that uh, it inspires me a lot and um, it's weird, but uh, zone inspires me a lot. I had visited it for many times and I had never felt such kind of calm inside me and uh, I like everything about it I like this Pripyat uh, shadows I like this blossom in nature I like these um, animals because I saw weird animals there and I met there just like they faced me uh, and it was the great uh, impression for me and uh, I like people who work there, I, they're heroes for me. I like everything about about liquidation in, uh, I mean that, I think that it's really uh, heroes that were in 1986 and now. And um, when it was occupation, it was some kind of that my personal uh, zone was raped. It was unbelievable for me to believe that all history, all sacrifices, 
all our data, all our research were raped by these orcs, by these animals. It's not human if they can trace and dig themselves into a polluted uh, soil. So you can see the level of their consciousness. It's so low. And uh, it was so hard to... Um, here what uh, they left in the plant uh, stole almost everything that uh, they made some stupid like they uh, were trying to cook hares and rabbits just uh, in some cabinets uh, that it's like weird uh, barbarians why and uh, the m most uh, painful for me was that despite of all political uh, moments, it's our mutual memory, because uh, it was uh, also a part of Soviet Union. It happened in Ukraine, but a lot of liquidators were from Belarus, from Russia. It was a uh, long time ago, and it was our mutual tragedy uh, and uh, our mutual sacrifices, and they raped their own memory they don't think about it because they don't think about anything they can't think because they have no organ to think i think it, it, it's hard but um it, it's so huge topic to learn to dig and uh, i think it's some kind of also prediction for humanity and it for me it uh, changed uh, the way of our history of all mankind uh, without any uh, loud words. Uh, for me, it's so. You see, that is why Ukrainians as a society are very resilient. In everything, we see lessons. Lessons learned. We will prevail and do something better next time. And uh, I just wanted to say that that is exactly, I mean, when Nata said that we felt raped. That is exactly how all of the employees of the exclusion zone felt. It was very difficult to return back to our offices because, I mean, as my boss used to say, he was t saying about the equipment, but anyway, we can expand it also to people. Once you're importing something to the exclusion zone, you will never be able to take it out of the exclusion zone. Mm. So he was, we were talking about the equipment and he was trying to explain me, like, if I will buy the centrifuge, I will have to leave it in, uh, in the exclusion zone. But then the same goes to people. So once a person enters the exclusion zone, that's it. You're in love. You will return back there. If you have the right soul, the, the right state of mind, you will stay in the exclusion zone. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't, I can't thank you both enough for this experience. It's been such an honor to, to share this time with you. I'm so grateful. I wish you both the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for invitation. Stay up to date with Nata and her band Anuka by visiting their website, onuka.ua. You can learn more about Olena and her work by visiting her LinkedIn profile or her institute's website, isnpp.kiev.ua. Today's episode was developed with Anastasia Krasnishon and InScience, a nonprofit organization that promotes science and evidence-based medicine in Ukraine. For more information about their work, 
please visit inscience.io. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, digital producer is Keenan Cush, mix engineer is Lou Carlozo, and our social media manager is Bailey Constas. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about the show and give us a review. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.